please be seated. Except for the kiddos, you can go. Off you go. Uh, my name is Nathan, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to serve you this morning uh, in the feeding of God's Word. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at only two verses, and before we break into those passages, uh, into this particular passage, let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the church of Jesus Christ, and thank you for the hope that we have in him. Lord, with all that is on our hearts and minds in these moments, we pray that you would be our focus, that your word would instruct us, inform us, excite us towards godliness, towards holiness. Help us, God, to understand sanctification, how it works, that we might enjoy your pleasure. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to look at just a couple passages, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And uh, as we look at those verses, uh, we're going to find today, after this sermon, we're going to be halfway through the book of Philippians. My goodness, we're only halfway through uh, four chapters. That's right. We are almost halfway through this wonderful passage. And you'll recall a couple weeks ago, we rehearsed the gospel there in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. And then we saw in verse 9, there was a therefore. And every time we see a therefore, we know there's a reason it's what? Therefore. Yes. If you're new to the church, welcome. We just do this all the time. So, uh, yeah, and so that therefore was instructive because it's responding to what we saw just before it. And that therefore in verse 9 was different than the other therefores we're used to seeing. And it was different because we see God the Father. We see God the Father's response to the rehearsal of the gospel in verses 6 to 8. That was God the Father's response there in verses 9 to 11. And so you'll notice in our passage this week in verse 12, we've got what else? Another therefore. So this one's different. Now we're going to see our response as the church to the gospel. That's what we see there in verses 12 and 13. So keep that in mind. This is our response to the gospel. Uh, And so I'm going to read it. Here it goes. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now you'll notice when we read through that, there's a few things that maybe came across to you as a little odd, or at least you have some questions that you would want answered. Uh, the first would be, on the one hand, we're told in this passage that we, those that are in Christ, need to work out our salvation. And yet in the very next verse, it says, but it is God that's working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Is this one of those passages in the Bible where we see that maybe like the pundits would say that the Bible just is full of all these contradictions? Well, no, not at all. What we have here, friends, is what Bible scholar J.I. Packer calls an antinomy. An antinomy is two ideas that may appear to be contradictory, but in reality are perfectly compatible with the holy and infinite God. And so if Paul, friends, was making the Christian religion up as a farce, Or, secondly, maybe some Bible uh, scholars have sort of 
mistakenly copied some things over the course of years. It would be foolish to keep these two things together right next to each other if, in fact, there's something wrong with it or contradictory. Now, what, in fact, we have, it would be far more likely, is that both of these ideas here in this passage of us working out our salvation and God working in our salvation are both equally true. So Packer continues. He says, quote, We like to tie up everything into neat intellectual parcels with all appearance of mystery dispelled and no loose ends hanging out. Hence, we are tempted to get rid of antinomies from our minds by illegitimate means to suppress or jettison one truth in the supposed interest of the other. And for the sake of a tidier theology, Packer says, end quote. He po- Packer goes on to talk about how this is not good to try to uh, keep these things so neat and tidy. Uh, but I think even maybe a member of our own church said it well when she was in my office a couple weeks ago and said, you know, sometimes I don't understand what God does, but I don't want to understand all that God does because if I could, that would mean that he was a man. That pretty much sums it up well, I think. And so the ideas of us working out and God working in our salvations are not contradictions of men, but instead they are complementary ideas bound up in the mystery of an infinite God. And I love maybe how C.S. Lewis puts it when he says in speaking to the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, if you say that they are opposed or what's going on with those two, he says, Uh, or asking which one of those two is more important, C.S. Lewis says that's like asking which blade of the scissors is more important. You need them both. And so let's dig into the passage here and see what the Lord has for us. God's role in our role in joy. Now, if you have the Philippians card and you've been following along in the passages in the Bible, you'll notice I just changed a little bit one of the, uh, the titles to this sermon in particular. On that sheet, it should say God's role and my role in joy. Well, I didn't quite get that right, as we'll see. This sermon is entitled God's role and our role in joy. So we're going to start where Paul does with our role in joy. Uh, We're going to call this working out our salvation. Work out our salvation. Two parts of this. First part, work out our salvation. So uh, as we jump into this passage in verse 12, In particular, we need to flesh out a couple things here that may also be on your mind. The first question we need to ask here of this passage is, to whom is uh, Paul speaking? Who's Paul talking to? It says there to work out your own salvation. Now, if you were doing your personal devotions this week, and maybe you were reading through this passage, you would read that and you would be led to conclude that he was speaking to you individually, your own there. And of course, to a degree, that would be correct, right? Uh, we all know that those that are saved are individually saved. We believe that God knows the sheep by name that he individually died for. But that wouldn't be a precise appraisal of what Paul is addressing, or more particularly, who Paul is addressing in this passage. So you see that your own there in verse 12? That's in the plural form. So more accurately, Paul here is addressing the church as a whole. I've been calling it Grace Church Philippi, this local church. He's addressing the church as a whole. And Paul's been doing this throughout this entire letter. Paul is concerned not merely for individual Christians. He's concerned for the church, for the local church in particular. And so the mission of Christ was never to merely save individuals from their sins. It was more than that. It included that, but it was more than that. Like we see in the Old Testament, God has always been interested in establishing a community of people people that live out the glory of the kingdom here on the earth he's always been interested in a community of people 
And so here in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, uh, in this New Covenant period, we know that's the church. And so, friends, we have uh, what I think we have happening here in our evangelical culture in the 21st century is we've begun to embrace the rampant individualism that's all around us in the world. But we should know that the Bible has no such place for such things, such a mind, that is. In the Trinity, God was and is in community with himself. And he saves individuals in order to gather them into a community so that they might reflect the beauty of who he is as a witness to the world and pleasure to those people, to that community. So we compromise that as Christians when we do not commit to the church and keep the church at a distance, only consuming her goods and services for ourselves. See, this is not the design of God for our joy and for his pleasure. It's the community. He's interested in the community. So keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. Paul is calling individuals of a local church to work out their salvation together as a people for their joy and for God's pleasure. And so if you identify yourself as a follower of Christ and you have not committed yourself to this church or another gospel-believing church, or you're in the, let me encourage you just to do something like that, to do that, to commit yourself to them. Don't conform to the patterns of this world by operating remotely as individual Christians. But be gathered into a local body so that you can accurately live out the good life that God has for you to be lived out with others. And let me remind you too, if you have committed to this church or another gospel-believing church, let me encourage you to think about this passage and how the witness of a people is to be brought together. And so let this passage encourage you to recommit these ideas of working out your salvation as a people, as a community. So that's the one question, the who is Paul talking to. But the other question that may have come to your mind when we read that passage was what's going on with this whole fear and trembling language? What's that about? So this fear and trembling language there in verse 12 is used four times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, the context is always the same. It's coming out of some call to obedience, some call to obedience. Now, this confuses some of us because we who are in Christ know that God has welcomed us home as adopted sons and daughters of God. He's brought us together to be friends, as it were. In other words, it's a clear teaching of Scripture that those who are in Christ are loved and welcomed. So why the language of fear and trembling? Well, anyone that is a parent or had good parents know exactly what's going on in this passage. Uh, And I'll give you a story to illustrate the truth. Uh, So just uh, a couple weeks ago, I was playing baseball. I love my two sons. Uh, I love playing games with my sons, love spending time with my sons. And one of my sons, as we were playing baseball in what we call the front yard of our apartment building, um, we were playing baseball, and I threw something happened in the course of the game that we were playing, at which time my son challenged me in a way that was not good. And I kept my anger in control, and I looked very forcefully at my son but did not utter a word. Just looked at him very forcefully, at which time he quieted down very quickly without me saying anything. So as to communicate, right? He knows, my son knows I love him and I'm for him. But he knows if he crosses me, sins against me, there's a sense in which he ought to fear dad, right? The same thing's going on here in this passage. But let me give you another example. Also in Exodus chapter 20, 20, I think we see the same idea of understanding how God can be for us and yet we should fear him at the same time. I think we see this in Exodus 20.20. Now, as God is speaking to Moses there on Mount Sinai in the cloud, the Israelites sat at the base of that mountain looking up, and they saw all that was going on uh, as fear. They feared the nearness of the holiness of God on that mountain. 
And so they said, to, they said to Moses as he came down, I love this, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Yet another antinomy, right? Did you catch that? When I was reading that just a couple weeks ago in my devotions, I thought it was strange. Did you catch what Moses says? Moses said, don't fear, but fear. Right? We got another antinomy there. So just like my kids, Moses is saying, don't fear the Lord. He's your God. He has favored you, but you should understand who he is and what he's capable of so that you don't get so comfortable with him that you begin to challenge him in your sin. That's what he's saying. And so this is yet another aspect, friends, of the Christian faith that I think is minimized in our days, namely the transcendence of God, the holiness of God. We're reminded of the prophet Isaiah who saw the holiness of God and said, woe is me. The Israelite people rightly understood that if they looked at God, they'd die. And so while maintaining God's covenant loyal love to us, his favor to us, his kindness to us, his fatherliness to us, yes, even his friendship to us, we also need to maintain this aspect of God that the New Testament keeps in front of us. Namely, that he is to be feared and trembled before. Now, to be clear, to be clear, this has nothing, this fear has nothing to do with a slavish terror, but it has everything to do with an attitude of reverence and awe. So we need to cultivate a mind that understands that we will answer to God for all of our deeds, both as individuals and as a church. See, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we fear losing the luxury of our iPhones more than we fear God. I think sometimes we fear being, we fear disappointing a friend more than we Fear disappointing the one that all nations and tribes will bow down to one day. So in other words, friends, it's our danger that we take God too casually and not serious enough. So we should know God is not our co-pilot. He's not our homeboy. God is not some sort of lovable grandparent that just wants us to give it the old college try, but, you know, doesn't mind when we get it wrong. That's not the picture we have. God is the same God that told Moses to take his shoes off in the presence of his holiness. And so while Christ has given us access to the Holy of Holies, that does not give us a license to be casual about our lives before him. He takes our obedience and our disobedience very seriously. And so this goes back to what I talked about last week, how we need to worship our way into humility. See, the casual Christian that has more fear of man than they do of God, needs to rehearse for themselves the voluminous pictures of God and His majestic holiness that are all over Scripture, including the New Testament. And so as we do this, Exodus tells us, the more that we rehearse the greatness of the holiness and the majesty of God, the more we find that we will not sin. Or as it says here, the more we will work out our salvation as a church. So let's think more about that. We've thought about a couple things already. We've, caught, we've thought about the fact that this is addressing the church. We've th- talked about the need to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But what exactly does that mean? What does it look like to work out a salvation as a local church with reverence and all? Well, I think what Paul is saying to the church there in Philippi, what he's saying to us is that we need to be a church. We need to be a people that responds to the gospel in a way that pictures as though we have the gospel, as though we've been born again. Respond to Christ in a way that all the nations would be responding. That is, in reverent worship of him who has the name that is above every name. That Christ is the Lord. That he is the king. That he is reigning and ruling. 
Be a community that is a foretaste of that reality. Be a community that is a foretaste of heaven. Like you've been born again to a new and living hope. Work that out. Work that out. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, after rehearsing salvation, he says in chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's sort of just a blip. And I'm going to come down on that a little bit more. But I want you to notice, too, as we begin to dive deeper into what it means to work out our salvation as a church. Did you notice at the beginning of that passage, in verse 12, Paul represents or speaks to his beloved. My beloved. Did you catch that? Did you also notice that he recognized their consistent obedience? See that there in the the passage? So Paul loves this church. He loves this church. This church has stood by him through thick and thin. We can remember back to chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so Paul recognizes this is a good church. It's a healthy church. And he doesn't miss the opportunity to recognize their obedience when he calls them to obedience. So he's saying there, so Grace Church Philippi, my beloved, You guys have always done this, so keep this up. Whether I get to you or I don't get to you, keep this up. Keep the witnessing to the gospel and the community of the gospel. Keep going. He seems to be a little concerned, Paul does, that there's a little bit of grumbling, complaining, arrogance, and attitudinal problems that are kind of creeping in. And he loves this church enough to speak into that, to curb it from growing. And so... As I address that, as Paul addresses and recommends or recognizes their obedience and tells them how much he loves them, I would be remiss if I didn't do the same to you before I apply the text uh, to us as a body. And so I speak on behalf of all the elders when I say that you are our beloved, that we love you, that we thank God for you, Uh, what a gift it is to serve you and to walk alongside of you as a church. We love what you're doing and how you're pursuing Christ in the church. We recognize your obedience, your consistent obedience. I want you to know that uh, as we move into this passage. So it's easy just to kind of call you into a bunch of stuff as though you've never done this before. And that's not true of you, beloved. We thank God for you and the ways that you're doing this. So remember, remember, Restoration Church, we do not work from, or actually we don't work towards our salvation. We work from our salvation. That's what Paul is saying here. God is the one that works in us to work from that salvation that we're, we've been seeing, that I just commended you for. God has given us the eyes to see this gospel. He saved us, and so now we have to work from that gospel, from that salvation with fear and trembling. And again, I'm thankful for the ways that you're doing that. But as we do this, brothers and sisters, it's important that we understand these things be reminded of these things right it can be easy to kind of forget these ideas of working out salvation with reverence and awe and so it'd be good for us to rehearse them to be reminded of what it is it looks like to be a community that has been born again that understands god is holy what does it look like to hate what god hates and love what god loves what does it look like to be that kinds of people more particularly all right well let's drill down and see we've got 66 books in the bible we could answer that question from We could hold up this whole thing. What does it look like to work out your salvation? We could go through this whole thing, and that would be a lot, wouldn't it? Well, what I did this week is instead of going through the entire book of the Bible to understand what it looks like particularly, practically, to work out our salvation, what I figured I would do is I'd just look at the book of Philippians. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, let's just try to take the one letter he wrote to see what he may have meant by that. 
by taking a look at all the things that Paul called the Philippian church to in those four passages, or four chapters, I should say. So this is what I did this week. I would encourage you guys to do the same. Go home and just write down on a piece of paper all that Paul called the Philippian church to. And then you're going to get a good picture of what it looks like to work out your salvation as a church. Didn't take me long. You say, man, that, Nathan, that'd take a long time. It didn't take me long at all. Just went to an empty piece of paper and just wrote it out. And I found 46 things. 46 things that Paul calls Grace Church Philippi to as a way of working out their salvation with fear and trembling. You ready? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to read all of them to you. Here they go. Here they go. All right, he says in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, this is what it looks like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, at least part of what it looks like. 9 to 11, he prays that love would abound in them more and more with knowledge and all discernment so they might approve what is excellent. Chapter 1, verse 19, he tells them to pray. Chapter 1, verse 26, he wants them to glory in Christ. He wants them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's 127. He wants them to not be frightened by opponents of the gospel. He wants them to suffer for the sake of Christ, 129. To believe, 129. To be engaged in conflict, chapter 1, verse 30. And again, same mind, same love, be in full accord, be of one mind. Complete the joy of others, chapter 2, verse 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Count others more significant than yourselves, chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 4, look to the interests of others. Next verse, have the mind or the attitude of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10, bow the knee to Christ the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. So we'll look at next week. The rest of this is stuff we haven't done yet. We'll look at for the rest of the year. Chapter 2, verse 15, shine as lights in the midst of a crooked world. Chapter 2, verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. Chapter 2, verse 30, receive other gospel laborers. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, look out for dogs, for evildoers who mutilate the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward to what lies ahead. Press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 16, hold true to what we have attained. Chapter 3, verse 17, keep our eyes on the mature and imitate them. Chapter 3, verse 20, await our Savior. Stand firm in the Lord, 4-1. Agree in the Lord, 4-2. Help other gospel laborers, 4-3. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be made known to all. Chapter 4, verse 6, be, do not be anxious for anything. Chapter 4, verse 6, pray with requesting and thanksgiving. 4.8, think about all kinds of things, things that are true. Think about things that are honorable or pure or good things. Chapter 4, verse 9, practice what has been seen and taught by Paul. And chapter 4, verse 21, greet every saint in the church. There it is, 46 of them. These are all the things in this particular passage that I think would begin to orient us towards what it might look like as a church to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you can see as I work through that list, man, we need the church, don't we? Can you imagine trying to work that list out on your own? God help us. So it just reminds us of the need for the church to work these things out. It gives us a bit of an, uh, of a, of an intimidation, though, doesn't it, when we work through those things. Even with the church, it's a bit intimidating. 
So let me encourage us in a few ways in light of this command to work out our salvation. There's a lot there. So I want to just encourage you as we think about these things with four things as we come out of them. First off, we're going to go there in a minute, but I need to remind you, beloved, God is the one that works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one that works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, again, put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. So do you need to make decisions and obey? Of course you do. Do you need to make an effort towards holiness? Of course you do. But is it something you do alone? No. Is it something you do in your own power? No. Is it something you'll do perfectly? No. Isn't that freeing? So as you, as we, as a church, work out our salvation, remember, God is our confidence and our strength, and the church is our community that helps us display His glory to the world. Remember that. Second, in order for you to know how to obey this command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you've got to know the Word. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to spend time reading it and understanding it and thinking about it. See, if we're going to be a community that shines the bright light of the gospel by working out our salvation, we have to know what God expects of us, what it looks like to be a holy community and people. So that's going to demand that we familiarize ourselves with his word. And so try and imagine working out your role as a Supreme Court justice with just a cursory knowledge of the Constitution. Right? It just wouldn't go well, right? Try and imagine working out your role as a code inspector with just a cursory knowledge of the code wouldn't work right so we've got to familiarize ourselves with the word alejandro this week passed along to me a survey uh, taken by a very reputable theological organization and they just asked questions to all these evangelical christians and needless to say friends it was really discouraging to read uh there's all these just clear typical just basic sort of bible questions that I mean, huge chunks of confessing Christians just would contradict each other on on the clear teaching of the text. Let that not be us. Let us take the time to study the Word and to think these things through and not just sort of casually go about the teaching of God's Word. See, far too many confessing Christians, I think, are comfortable with what amounts to a Cliff Notes version of the Bible. That's just not okay, especially when we have such easy access to it. You know, I think about our brothers and sisters that are working over in the Middle East now, Central uh, Asia, and many of them don't even have Bibles in their own language. But that's not true of us. It's right here for us to spend time with. There's all kinds of apps. I, we have a brother in our church, brother in my community group. He's found this really fun app that puts music to Scripture, and they just read the Bible. Great! On the way, he's reading it, thinking about it. It's a good tool, so many tools for us to actually take the time to read the Word. And not, we, but we can't be comfortable with just a cursory knowledge. We need to memorize, meditate on the Word, apply the Word for the good of this community and for the good of God's glory in our community. So we need to remember it's God at work in us as we work this out. We need to actually take the time to invest in His Word. And third, we need to spend some time in prayer. Ask God to reveal His Word to you. Every single time I do my personal devotions, every single morning, the first thing I do every single time, before I even open up the Bible, God, would you please help me to understand what I'm about to read and apply it? Convict me, train me, direct me. And then I open up the Bible. And off I go. Pray. So when you read the Gospels, you're going to notice there's a particular pattern of Jesus. He does a few things all the time. He's always teaching. 
And another thing we find him doing all the time is he's praying a lot. He's spending a lot of time in praying. And so if you don't pray, friend, it's very difficult to work out your salvation because it communicates you think you're able to do it in your own power. So think about that. Whether the presence of or the lack thereof of your prayer life. We've got to pray if we're going to do this. But fourthly, don't forget that God, that working out our salvation as a church with fear and trembling is a labor of love. It's a labor of joy. These are good, good things. So Paul uses the word joy in this book 14 times in four chapters. That's a lot. 14 times in four chapters. So this thought here and what we're talking about, working out salvation, can even, can even be connected back into chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul is commending that the joy be made complete, his joy made complete. And so working out our salvation is not a, a deviation from pleasure, but instead it's a pathway into pleasure. But we have to go back to the source, don't we? So we've seen, we've considered our need to work out our salvation as a church. We thought for a little bit about all those things. We thought about the ways in which we could cultivate that idea of working out our salvation, picturing the holiness of God. Secondly, we need to look at the other piece, the other blade of the scissors, as it were, that God is working in salvation. We work out our salvation as God works in our salvation. That's verse 13. And now notice in verse 13, that presence of the word for. You see it there? Paul saying, we can work out our salvation because of what he's about to say, okay? So, for it is God who works in you. How, Paul? Both to will and to work. Well, for what purpose? For his good pleasure. So, as we work out, God is working in us. And what is it he's working in us? Two things. He's working in us a will or a desire for gospel labors. And secondly, he's working in us the work of gospel labors. So God is mercifully working in us to desire and to demonstrate his heavenly kingdom here on earth. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? That God is the one that's giving us the desire and the demonstration to illustrate his kingdom to the earth. And why is the Lord doing that? Why would he give us these desires and this work? For his Good pleasure. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it good to know that our joy and God's pleasure are not opposing armies, but are comrades in arms working together? Isn't that good to know? So I want you to stop and think about the times, or actually the things that Paul is saying and appealing to here. When you think about this, God has done all kinds of things in your life, given you all kinds of desires. Take a moment and think about that. Where did that come from? It came from God, according to Paul. So when you heard me read those passages a minute ago, those 46 things, was there even a shred of a desire for you to obey those passages? Well, guess what? Guess where that came from? Didn't come from you. Came from God. Came from God. God, that little desire. Oh, I need to be doing that. Oh, I need to pray more. I need to spend time on the Word more. I need to whatever else, all these other things, to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. That came from God. If you desire to do that, came from God. God put that in you. And amazing to think about. God planted that desire. And even if you think about the times in which you've obeyed that, God worked in you to, distrib- to demonstrate that. So take some time even this week to go back and consider all the ways that this church, maybe just in the past week, has done this, has had wills and demonstrations of the work of the gospel. Some of you this past week have served meals. Some of you have shared the gospel with the lost. Some of you have met up with other brothers and sisters for the purposes of helping them and making disciples. 
We have members right now in this very moment that are sitting right over there outside those doors. And what are they doing? They're making disciples. They're teaching children the Word of God. How did that, so as that's happening, or even right now as I'm preaching, how does this happen right now? God is doing it. What's happening over there? God gave them the desire to sign up, I'll teach children. And then he gave them the work to go in there and teach children. That's amazing. Where's God out in the world? I can't see any of his work. Well, right, hello, right here. Here I am. It's working out, right? This is amazing when you stop and think about this. We have members uh, also that you, you guys have actually given your money. Just right now, we had this. You gave a, had a desire to take money. Who does that? Take money. I want to give money away to the work of the community of the gospel. You have forgiven radically. You've served others radically because of the gospel. God worked in you to perform that, to give you a desire and a demonstration of it. And guess what? Here's what's even more fun about that. As he did that in you, in us, he did it, why? For his pleasure. He just has fun working this out in us and has pleasure in walking to happen. So I was thinking about this even in my own life. Andy and I put the kids down to bed the other night and we were rehearsing something. We were having a conversation about something. And I began to be reminded of a time when I played in the Frontier League and we were on a bus. And this is what athletes do. We sit on buses a lot. And we were on this particular bus. And as we were on this particular bus, there were TV screens about every other seat. And you can imagine what a bus full of 25 or 30, 22 to 25-year-olds would want to watch on a bus. Uh, and it was broadcast. You can imagine, I'm not going to even mention it. It was just really bad stuff that you should not be watching. And it was broadcast right in front of me. And I, I was thinking about this with Andy last week. I don't, I don't know that I ever stopped to think about this, but every time they would turn that on, I would take the time to put my earphones on and I'd pick a book up and I would not look or listen to what was happening on that television screen. Now that happened numerous times and it would happen for spans of time. Now you might say, oh Nathan, you must, you're a really holy guy. No! What did the Bible just teach us? I didn't do that, right? It makes no sense that I would make the desire, it would be much more pleasurable and immediate in, in sense to look up at that TV. But that's not what I did. It's not what I did. And why did I not do that? Even sitting now, I think back, gosh, it's amazing. I didn't even, just for a couple minutes, watch it. But I didn't. Why? Because God worked it in me to not do that. and gave me the desire to not do that. And, and then he performed that work in me. And so we should take the time to rehearse these kinds of things in our life. When you guys go to lunch today, so if you're a visitor here and you're new and you want to get to know the people in the church, find somebody. These guys, they all go out to lunch to Burger Tap and Shake and District Taco and all these other places. They go somewhere. Find them, they'll go with you. And when you guys are sitting around the table, let me encourage you to do this. Take the time to do what I just did. Take the time to just rehearse how God gave you or someone you know the desire and the demonstration to work out His will. Just rehearse those times and then just stop and give praise to God that he did it, that he worked in you, that he worked in us. When you go to sleep this week, every night you go to sleep, when you, before you lay down, just think of one way that particular day that God gave you a desire or a demonstration for his gospel labor. And then after you do that, as you lay your head down, try and connect that how that helps the witness of a local body of Restoration Church. And then as you cast off to sleep, be reminded, he did it for his pleasure. He just did it to have pleasure. Try and rehearse that uh, and be encouraged by the work in that way. We're going to do this tonight at our members meeting. Covenant members, 5 o'clock, Washington International tonight. We're going to do this. We always start our members meetings the same way. What do we do? 
We recognize evidences of grace, right? So as we do that tonight, Restoration Church, we need to be reminded, who did that? God worked in us to accomplish that. That's amazing when we stop and think about it. And so God did that in us, in our church, to bring about His good pleasure and our joy that would be found therein. And so God is working in us as a church so that we might work out His good pleasure. And of course, nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the cross of Christ and in the person of Christ. These two passages are so evident in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can be reminded of Jesus who was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Remember that night before he was handed over and he said, let this cup pass from me. But, remember what he said next? Not what I will, what you will. And as he prayed, you remember what happens next? As he prayed, Jesus, after this, rises up and gladly submitted himself to the cross where he would substitute himself for sinners. And so we should ask the question, where did the change come? How did the change, where did the change, how do we go from, I don't want to do this, God, the Father, to rise, the hour has come, let me walk into this. Where's the change? Well, you might say, well, Jesus just tapped it into his godness in order to accomplish that change. You might say that. But friends, let's not forget that Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the incarnate man who learned obedience, was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. We could look back up in verse 8 in chapter 2 right there. We see that he was obedient to the point of death. And so Scripture gives us no impression that Jesus just flipped the fully God switch and went to the cross without any struggle. No. Remember, he was anointed by the Spirit, was sent into the world. And so the switch in Gethsemane from let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, what you will, to then obeying the will of God in, the, in going to the cross was when God the Father began to work in his Son through the Spirit to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that amazing to think about? And by the way, how did that switch happen? Through what vessel? Prayer. Prayer. And so for the joy set before Christ, he gave up his life on the cross for sin, made a sacrifice for sin. He was resurrected three days later as the first fruits of a world restored to God and to his good, pleasing and perfect. There it is again, will. So Christ worked out salvation on the cross as his heavenly father worked in him to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so now the gift of salvation is offered freely to all of us. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you desire to renounce your sins, to turn away from your sins, to look to Christ as your hope, as your reward, as your substitute for your sin, if that desire is in you, guess what? God is planting that in you. And He's working in you to point you to salvation, to bring you into salvation. Turn away from sin, trust Christ, and then Look to the resurrection and know that you will have hope in life therein. And then after you give your life to Christ and you go on to demonstrate salvation, look to Christ, your reward, your hope, your power to bring about those good works in you. So this is why we say around here so often that Jesus Christ is both our pattern and our power. He's both. He is our pattern. He's our example in that he worked out his salvation. And because he did, we now look to him by the power of the Spirit to be empowered to obey it, to perform it. So the sufficiency of Christ's work both instructs us and empowers us. 
And so if you are sensing a desire to know salvation for the first time, receive it as a gift from God with thanksgiving. Ask his salvation to then be worked out in you. Tell someone about it so that you might be ingrained into the life of the church that he is using as the vessel to magnify his glory. And if you have trusted Christ and you have been regenerated by his spirit, let me remind you again that God did that by an act of his free grace in love to you for his good pleasure. And secondly, as you seek to work out that salvation that he has given you, let me remind you, brother, sister, to look to God to give you the will and the work of that salvation. God did not leave you to work a field on your own, in your own strength. He left you in a field to work for his pleasure, but he gave you the empowerment by his spirit to work in that field for his glory. And secondly, that end, he also gave you the end of his pleasure as it is helped along by the church, the community. And some of you need to hear that because you're exhausted from trying to work out your salvation on your own. Others of you need to hear that because you desire to display the gospel, but you feel defeated by the performance of it. Listen, take heart. The very presence of that desire to obey came from God. He's at work in you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be thankful. And don't grow weary in doing good, Restoration Church. Help each other. Look to Christ. Be empowered by Him. God is working in us as we work out from grace. Cultivate a sense of His holiness. Help and pray for one another. Trust God. Make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ and rejoice that as all of this happens, God is working in us for His good pleasure. That's the passage that we learned this morning. Christ, God Himself, is calling us to something. And we know our role in it as a church is to work out. And God's role in it is to work in us, to empower us for His good pleasure. And so let's ask Him for help to do just that. Father, we thank You for the truth of this passage. At first, it was obedience of Christ that makes obedience possible at all for we sinners. Second, God, we're thankful as we're reminded from this passage that You then take the sufficiency of the Gospel and apply it to we broken sinners. And regenerate our hearts and give us a passion, a will and a work to obey You as a people. And thirdly, God, we thank You for the privilege of being part of Your work. Oh, what a privilege it is to be ambassadors of the King of Kings. And so may we work out our salvation as You work in salvation for Your good pleasure. Help us, God, we pray, as a people, as a church, as Restoration Church, to be a witness that testifies to these great realities that we see here in Philippians. We love you, God, and thank you that you first loved us and are actively working in us even now. We pray this in Christ's name.